0: No my Heidi Mai and welcome to the Seed Pod Season 3, a podcast where we explore the wonders of nature and our connections to the earth. Each episode we invite guests to share their stories of nature connection and to nerd out with us about everything from art and conservation advocacy to the fascinating world of fungi. I'm your host and fellow nature enthusiast, Sean Crowley, and I'm excited to dive deep into the natural world with all of you. So sit back, relax, and let's get lost in the beauty of nature. Kia ora koutou. welcome back to The Seed Pod. This is episode 19 and I'm here with Noah. Welcome Noah.
1: Thanks for having me Sean. I really appreciate that. Kia ora, my name is Noah. I'm a biology student from University of Canterbury and I've just recently graduated. I'm a big enthusiast of biodiversity especially in New Zealand and its conservation so I'm, I'm particularly interested in birds, insects especially butterflies and moths and also wetlands and all different types of ecosystems and conserving them too and I think they're really important.
0: Amazing thanks so much. So I'd love for you to start off by sharing a story from your Nature Connection journey.
1: According to my parents, I was a pretty sort of adventurous kid when I was little. Um, I liked to go out and lead the the family in, in terms of going out for walks and stuff. So there was that little spark in me. But um, I first sort of got into nature and appreciating nature when I was actually more of a young teenager. And up until that point, you kind of don't realize what's around you. But there was one moment, especially I remember, where... And my family, we went to a batch up in the northern Canterbury region at the Hurunui River mouth. We went there and I looked at all the bird books they had. They had tons of different bird books, and I thought that was quite interesting. So I started looking through them and I saw these different birds. And then I looked outside, and there were also a bunch of birds out there. It was sort of a very interesting location because you had the river and the coast, and also farms, but also native bush nearby. So once we we're doing our activities, I started noticing all the birds that I read in the book. So I decided to write down a list of all the birds I saw on the trip. And then I left that list in the house. And it was quite a long list because there was actually a lot of species. And then from there, I just remember noticing birds just while I'm doing my things. You know, I was quite into going outside. So I'll go for a bike ride or something like that. And I'll see a bird. So I remember once I was biking on the port hills where I'm from in Christchurch. And there was a kariria or a New Zealand falcon just sitting on a rock and they're not found anywhere near Christchurch usually. So I just remember being so fascinated by that. And I think it was the fascination of just wildlife and also nature in general that that really intrigued me. And it's fascinating because it's so complex. I think that's something that I've learned also by studying biology at university was it's quite diverse. There's so much life out there and it's all very complex, which I find so interesting. I think that's such a fascinating part of it it's there's no no like sort of common rule to most things in biology and I've sort of seen that throughout my years um being quite interested in it so yeah
0: amazing what a journey you've been on and it's so cool to hear that from a young age you were able to have that passion sparked through the books that you'd seen at a friend's batch and and then being able to identify the birds from there which is such a It's just an awesome way to get involved in it because you're really connecting deeply to those species and and understanding them as well. You say that you're super passionate about biodiversity and it started at a young age, but I also know that you've had some pretty cool experiences that may have fast-tracked that journey for you. So would you like to share about some of those?
1: I was definitely quite interested in nature from those early teenage years, but it was often pushed, you know, to the back of my head because I had different hobbies and different things going on in my life. So I had a a few different sort of experiences that got me into it. And one of which was getting into nature photography. Often if we were going on any family holidays or stuff like that, I would, you know, take photos and see what I've taken and look back. And yeah, it'd be quite cool. Up until about 2021, I was pretty into it, but often I didn't know how many other people around me were into it. And I often thought I was sort of, you know, by myself in terms of I'm interested in, you know, bird watching or different avenues of experiencing nature like photography and looking at plants and insects and all sorts of different things. However, I was selected for a Young Explorers Scholarship to the Southern Tarkta Islands in New Zealand with a company called Heritage Expeditions in early 2021. And it was a complete shock. I, I wrote a letter to them explaining how much I'd love to go there because I had seen it, and again, in books. I, I always thought it was really cool because it was, you know, a really rugged place, really hard to get to. These islands that were always—they seemed always really stormy and moody—and it just seemed like a very cool place to go to, and quite different from the mainland of New Zealand. So it just seemed really interesting to me. So when I got selected for that, I had about a week or so to prepare, and I remember it all being really like, "Oh, this is so exciting!" So yeah, I went down. It was a boat trip for a week to uh, two island groups called the Snears and Auckland Islands, and this trip really shaped how I appreciated nature and also how I viewed nature in in the world it was definitely probably the most wild and isolated place i've ever been and i had no idea how wild and how sort of abundant wildlife could be in a place so for instance i remember going to the sneers islands and i just made some new friends on that on that boat i remember that and we got up quite early before sunrise and we made it to the Sneas Islands and this was below uh, Stewart Island of New Zealand. We got out onto the boat and it was really calm and that was quite rare, apparently. And we watched all the uh, city shearwaters, which are a a seabird, fly out from the burrows out to sea. There were definitely tens of thousands. It was incredible. And the whole skies were lit up just like completely darkened by them. And I've never seen something so incredible. And it was honestly just eye opening to me because when you live in a city for so long and you live in a place, you see wildlife, but it's such an occasion. And to see something so abundant and something that's considered quite like uncommon where I'm from, so common. It, there was many experiences like that on that particular trip. And again, going to the Auckland Islands, that was very cool. And there was uh, another, you know, you know, abundance of wildlife there. And also knowing that this is kind of what New Zealand mainly used to be it, combining these together it made me realize you know what we have lost through time and what could be New Zealand and what could be you know other parts of the world
0: absolutely incredible did you have a favorite species that you had an interaction with while you were in the subantarctics
1: it's a hard decision because all the species there are really cool and they're really adapted to their sort of almost, you know, Antarctic environment. I would have to say it would be the light mantled city albatross. For me, that was a bird I really wanted to see. Again, it was, you know, it's it's seen as this phantom nighthawk, sort of matte black, very cool looking bird of the South. And it just, it always looked very intriguing. However, it was very elusive. I, I made a friend on that boat and he was also very keen on seeing this bird. However, it kept trying to escape us, it felt. It, it was always very hard to see. And I remember one instance where we were eating breakfast, I think, on the boat. And you could there were portholes on the boat. And we you know—we were kind of looking out, as you do. And then all of a sudden, we see a light man with city albatross. Stare. It felt like it was staring right at us. And we just got up and ran out. But it had already sort of flown away in a way but we ended up getting some photos so we did get to see them and they were actually quite funny because there were maybe three or so just on the ocean surface and they were all sort of doing this funny dance together and just sort of shaking their heads and you realize oh they're not actually you know they're actually just birds and not this this like phantom like elusive thing that you know a ghost of some sort is it's actually yeah so I, I that was sort of my experience with that bird um I'm sure other people have different experiences but they've very uncommon on the mainland, so it was re- a really special bird for me because it was something you don't get to see very often, and something that doesn't really show up in sort of mainland New Zealand. However, maybe it used to. I'm not too sure.
0: Yeah, that is that is totally true as well. Like we don't fully know what was before and what that really looked like, and so it's amazing to be able to experience those remote places where it's kind of that glimpse into what it could have been like, and to be able to experience those elusive creatures that are so well adapted to the environments that they're living in is absolutely amazing. So I'm so glad that you got that experience. Taking a different path, you've said how passionate you are about invertebrates would you like to talk about this more?
1: Yeah definitely yeah so from those islands where it's dark and rainy and cold like even in summer you don't see many insects there but there was one insect I did see and it was a a global moth called Agrotis epsilon and I took a photo and I found out what it was called and that that was its name. That got me interested in insects and how they work and why the way they are, I guess. So when I got back to New Zealand, I was, you know, very into birds. But also I started looking into insects and I realized there was a huge diversity of insects. And this sort of paired with my studies at the time at university with that basic ecological pyramid, you know. The size of a species or a size of animals correlates to how many there might be. So you get maybe the bottom part of the pyramid and it's like maybe plants and, and primary producers. And then as you go up the pyramid, it's like, herbivores so uh, animals that eat the plants and then as you go further up you get secondary predators and then maybe apex predators which are in terms of biomass so the amount of mass they are like they are the, they have the smallest amount so there's very few big you know apex predators but there's quite a lot of those sort of smaller insects and well animals but a lot of them are insects and I did become quite interested in them one of the first sort of groups I got interested in was butterflies. And butterflies, of course, are related to moths. However, they are slightly different. Butterflies, you know, they're they're quite beautiful. They're like birds in a way, I think, and they're often a lot more all over in your face, sort of sort of animals. Moths are sort of more of the the, the animals of the dark. But a lot, it's something that people don't really realize a lot of the time is that um, moths can be day flying and they can look look a lot like butterflies. But then, what is the difference? So the difference is, I think, one of the main differences is um, the antenna. So when they have the sort of antenna coming of the head. On butterflies, it sort of tapers outwards into a little bulb on the end. Moths generally do not. Moths generally are nocturnal, but there are some day flying moths and they are quite interesting. They can often be quite colorful. And I don't think there's any butterflies in New Zealand that fly during the night, but if someone can find one, that'd be excellent. Yeah, I think that's the main differences. Because I was studying biology at the time and I, I was into insects and things, I was asked if I could do some work for a group to survey the entomological uh, biodiversity of some of their reserves that they manage. So I did that last summer and that was a really cool experience. It was sort of my first like proper sort of scientific research. It was really a good challenge for me because I had to trust the processes that I was using to. Find the invertebrates and insects, and make sure I was doing it consistently, so I wasn't creating any error in my results or any bias or anything like that. And it was a good way of sort of getting the, the what you learn from university and then and putting it into practice as an actual project. And it was all very self motivated as well. I had supervisors, but they were quite hands off, and I was sort of the person leading it. And I had people to help me, and I'm very grateful for that. So I did a few different surveys. So we did surveying of McCormick's Bay Reserve in Christchurch and also Thistledown Reserve. These were quite small wetland reserves, and we just recorded all the terrestrial invertebrates within the reserves. I also did, with another colleague of mine, a nocturnal invertebrate survey of Charlesworth's Reserve, which is also wetland reserves, all around the estuary. And that was really cool as well, because doing the nocturnal work was something that this group that I uh, helped had not done before. So we ended up finding a bunch of this new sort of, this new sort of world of nocturnal sort of insects and things like that. And it was really eye-opening and it was really impressive really how much comes out at night that you wouldn't really see during the day. and That includes the moths for sure. So I was, you know, really enjoying it. Um, at McCormick's Bay, I ended up recording, I believe over 200 species of insects and other related invertebrates. So that was really successful. And Thistledown had a similar sort of number. Oh, It was a bit less. I think think it was around 170. It's a lot smaller, though. So you kind of expect that with habitat size. You can't expect the same amount of diversity of species when it's, you know, a smaller area and maybe more closed in, not as much opportunity for invertebrates to come in.
0: That's a huge amount of diversity in those reserves. That's amazing. Now, I'd love to know, how did that actually look? what were you doing on the ground to find these and and kind of do what we call a bio blitz, where you're finding all of the different species in that area and then recording them, especially when you're learning. How do you then track those species and discover what they are?
1: I had to really do a lot of reading beforehand. Um, Firstly, to sort of find methods to collect insects and to, I personally didn't do a lot of collecting. I more did uh, photography of them. So I would take photos of them and that would kind of be the record for them. I found that to be more of a sort of safer way of doing it instead of, you know, p- applying for a permit or having to set up a inventory and going through that process. I thought it was easier just to take photos and it's probably less invasive as well for the um, ecology. I also had to do a lot of, you know, reading on different types of insects and invertebrates. And I did a course at university that really helped me with that. And it it was an entomological course. It taught you a lot about the different groups and families of uh, insect and invertebrate. And that was really useful because there were some I wasn't too familiar with. There's quite a lot of obscure, almost ancient sort of groups. And it was quite interesting to actually come across them and realize, you know, these are really old species and they haven't maybe changed or evolved over a long time. So it was really interesting. And then of course, I had to, once I had photos or specimens of the invertebrates, I had to find out what they were. So usually photos were good enough to get a pretty okay identification or ID on them. I used a lot of keys and things like that, but I also used a lot of online sort of tools like iNaturalist and there was some good online keys as well and like uh, Manakee, Fenua, Lankia Research, that sort of thing that had, you know... uh, photos you could use or like certain diagnostics that you could use to figure out what you were looking at those were quite useful but I had to also be aware that it's actually really hard to be such a generalist and to try to identify everything you had to accept and some things won't be exact and you will get some things wrong and that's sort of a little bit of part of it you don't want that to happen but I try my best I try to reason why I would put a certain identification on and I try to be pretty uh conservative about it and not be too like oh it's this but I don't have all the evidence you know so you have to be very um, evidence-based and that's what I tried to achieve at least.
0: Yeah amazing now with those surveys was there anything that surprised you that came up?
1: Yeah there were there were things I just couldn't believe I'd found like there was a beetle species I had sort of shaken out of a bush in Thistledown Reserve this tiny little wetland reserve in in suburban Christchurch and I put it on iNaturalist and it ended up someone gave an ID and it looked pretty right and it was like the only record on online. I mean I'm sure there were specimens in museums and things but for the only sort of like global sort of database that's the only specimen I was like oh what this is just remarkable really. There's another example where I found a a moth species that was quite rare as well in New Zealand Um, but it was introduced so it was sort of not quite it was like oh this is interesting but it's also not exactly worthy of being concerned in terms of, oh, is it going to die out or anything like that. But it it lived off like sheep dung or something like that. It was really weird. But um, something we were really surprised with was how many actual quite large insects like uh, weta and stick insects come out during the night and in places you wouldn't even think of. That was really cool because there's these large sort of insects that I guess avoid predators during the day and they sort of use them you know, the, the night sort of darkness as the advantage. And it was just kind of amazing just seeing them and be like, we're in the middle of like the city and there's like these breaches that no one would usually see just around. And it was just, it was just really fascinating and the abundance of them as well. It just you, you really realize not everything can be visible all the time and not everything is as it seems, you know, the, if you look a bit closer and that's another thing I found out was if you look a bit closer at something, you end up finding so much more than, if you just look at it very briefly, so that's really important for science, I think, because a, a lot of science does involve sort of looking at a thing, and then repeatedly looking at a thing over and over and over. Some people do it for you know decades and decades, just looking at you know very small spaces and seeing how they change, and it's, it can be very interesting. So yeah.
0: So I'd love to talk more about the nocturnal moth. I think personally, nocturnal events are some of the most amazing events that I've been to. Some of the coolest work stories. And I have quite a few experiences that have been favourites for me. But in particular, one of them was with New Zealand's biggest moth, the Puriri moth. And the reason that I bring this up, so they can grow up to 15 centimetres in wingspan. And they have the most fascinating life cycle. So they can be a caterpillar for up to six years. And they burrow into trees to do this growth cycle, I guess. And they make the coolest little nets that are fully camouflaged with the tree bark. So unless you really know what you're looking for and look really close, then you don't know that it's actually like a little net over a hole, which is actually drilled into the tree in a seven shape. And that's to stop potentially flooding the hole because they're in there for so long. And then they're only an adult for up to 48 hours or so. Uh, And the sole purpose of their adult stage is for them to mate and to lay their eggs. They don't have any mouth parts as an adult, so they can't eat or anything. They're just living off the reserves that they've had from the juvenile stage, the caterpillar stage. So... My experience in the bush was having this massive puriri moth, my first experience with a puriri moth, flapping around and they are the noisiest things in the bush and it just happened to be spraying its eggs everywhere and in its adult life cycle I found out they can lay up to 2,000 eggs. And we got one of these moths stuck in our little hut that we were working from, and it laid eggs everywhere. And so we ended up like having to manually scatter all of these eggs throughout the forest. Um, but it was such a cool experience, and I just think that when you do really look close and you go out at times that you wouldn't expect things to be out, you often find things that are so incredible to experience, and. You've got a lot of experience with this. So the reason that I talk about the largest moth in New Zealand is because you actually have experience with the opposite end of the scale. So would you like to talk about maybe some night light trapping or micro moths?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm really jealous that you've seen the perere moth. I've never seen one, Um, right. being a South Islander. So it is a very... Bucketless list moth I would like to see so micro moths often refer to moths that are I don't exactly know the size actually but moths that are micro I guess I mean it makes sense but um yeah very small moths and um often they're quite hard to find and they're often even hard to see they can be really small but they can also be you know uh, about the size of your uh you know th- sort of fingernail that sort of size uh, I think those are still considered micro moths And uh, yeah, there's a huge diversity of them. I mean, in New Zealand, there's uh, well over 1,500 species of moth, and many of them are only found in New Zealand. And a lot of them are micro-moths, so they're a really important component of New Zealand biodiversity, and uh, there's many of them. My experiences doing light surveying has revealed quite a few of them within Christchurch, and also elsewhere. And it's funny, every sort of certain site has different moths and have to do with the conditions and what time of year it is that those sorts of things and even what sort of light you use. Moths are really attracted to lights and that's why we do light trapping at night. You might know if you have a light outside in your house you might see moths flying around it. Um, there's a few different theories why that is. I personally think it might have something to do with the moon and, and trying to sort of geolocate geo- and trying to find a way up into the air. And, and often moths will spread their aroma known as pheromones out into the open sky and so if, if they sort of follow a light source they'll come out of whatever location they are in so often they'll see a light and they think oh that's the way out so they'll go towards the light that might be one one reason so yeah there's many different types of micro moths and again, they are sometimes quite hard to identify. Some of them are very colorful. I remember there was one that had the sort of iridescence to it. It was, see, a lot of them don't even have common names. So I can't quite remember the name of it. Yeah, it um had sort of these little sort of circles on its wings, they were quite shiny. And I looked it up and I saw some photos of it up close. And I kind of saw someone mention, this kind of looks like a jumping spider. And then I looked at it. I was like, it perfectly looks like a jumping spider. It sort of had this reverse mimicry of like trying to look like an another animal, maybe to avoid predation or maybe to, you know, trying to get every other moth to fly away because it looks like a predator. So I found that really interesting. But this is a tiny little moth that, you know, it's smaller than a finger fingernail. It's, it's just fascinating that, those sorts of adaptations occur at that tiny level. The thing with moths are they they all start as eggs and then they hatch and they're not moths straight away. As you say, that there's eggs and then there's caterpillars. And as you say, with the Piretti moth, that relies on the Piretti tree, which is a North Island species. And many moths in New Zealand are quite plant-host specific. So that means they rely on one or a few species of plants to sort of complete their life cycle. So there's this connection between the plants in an area and also the moths in an area. And I find that is a very interesting sort of ecological interaction and study. I've done a few different sites around Christchurch. So for instance, Barnett Park in Christchurch and also Charlesworth Reserve. Also the other reserves, as I mentioned before, McCormick's Bay and Thistledown. And I correlated the moth species with uh, the plants. And often there was a correlation between the plants in the reserve and also the moths in the reserve. But of course, Just because there's a moth in a reserve that has no available host plant doesn't mean it's impossible to be there. I find another quite fascinating with them is obviously they can fly around and they end up in quite interesting places. Um, So there's a good possibility a lot of moths in those you know reserves when we're doing light trapping were coming from other places possibly you know surrounding suburbs or other parks and just flew over and that's really fascinating and in fact and butterflies can end up a long way from where they started um i know of butterflies that have uh, either flown or been blown over from australia to new zealand so it just shows the sort of absolute resilience of them and i find that just fascinating it's just like a tiny little insect just going all the way over i'm yet to see see it but i know of certain species that do show up occasionally so i'm always keeping my eye out
0: It's amazing. And I mean, talking about like being blown, but there's also butterflies that migrate massive distances. So it's pretty cool Mm -hmm. when you think about all of the different species that you have. And also, yeah, as you say, the plants that they need to be able to eat, to be able to breed, to be able to... Uh, do all of the things that they do and if there's not those specific plants some of them are able to adapt but a lot of them really struggle in those areas i know the puriri moth they rely on the puriri trees but they do have a couple of other hosts as well like the puta puta weta tree which is the Mm, ones that i absolutely love looking at because the story behind that as well is like they drill into those holes but after they become the adult moth there's a hole left in the tree and as nature does everything's connected and wetter end up living in those and other insects love to live in those as well so they create amazing mm. homes for other insects which is quite a cool relationship to have.
1: I didn't actually know that that's amazing.
0: Yeah yeah I, I studied it at uni and we were looking at the the number of holes in trees depending on the diameter of them and whether they were related which was pretty cool. So yeah (laughs) it's pretty cool like all of the niche things that you get to study as part of like ecology or you know entomology all of those things It's, it's just fascinating when you do like really dig deep into the relationships between different species. Also, something that you're very briefly talking about that I love to talk about is mimicry. And there's two types of mimicry that come to mind, Batesian and Malarian mimicry.
1: Isn't it one of them is sort of a more honest account of what they're trying to caution about to their yep. predator, and the other is more of a dishonest, and yep. it's actually just mimicking?
0: Yeah, exactly. So Batesian mimicry is a phenomenon where members of a edible species display bright colors which are often in species like insects in particular they have the bright colors to warn that they're poisonous so like the Mm. monarch butterfly is actually poisonous the caterpillars are actually poisonous to a lot of species and so the reason that they have those bright colors is to warn species you don't want to eat me it's not going to be good for either of us whereas there are some species that are faking it as you say yeah um, and they display in bright colors even though they can be eaten
1: yeah there's definitely species in New Zealand which have really bright colors but may not be truthfully dangerous so it, 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 but it also might be more of a mechanism of maybe trying to show off to a mate instead so there's that sort of there's so much there that hasn't been studied it's hard to actually know and that's what fascinates me as well the sort of unknown aspect of it
0: yeah, definitely. I totally agree. And then on the other hand, we have malarian mimicry where there are species that are equally toxic, but they share very similar appearances in terms of the coloration and the patterning so that it's easier for the predators to relate those colors and patterns to the fact that they are toxic and you don't want to eat them.
1: Yeah, I, I believe um, the monarch, is it the Viceroy butterfly that mimics the monarch? We don't get it in New Zealand, but oh. I th- I think that's that's an example of that there, yeah.
0: I hadn't personally heard of the Viceroy butterfly, so I gave it a little Google search after the episode, and it's amazing. They look so similar to monarchs, and there's very small differences in the patterns And very small differences in the sizes but it's quite hard to know the difference if you're just seeing one of the species at a time so it's pretty cool what adaptations some of our creatures have now i would love to hear about your wetlands that you've been working in and why they're important because you've now worked in quite a few wetlands And historically, Christchurch was all basically wetland, and it's been drained to create the city. And so you're doing a lot of work in restoring those areas, but also studying those areas. And I'd love to hear why we should care about wetlands. Yeah,
1: you're right. Christchurch is quite unique in New Zealand, as initially it was mostly quite a wet, uneven mix of terrain and ecosystems, a lot of which was wetland. And some of which, you know, this wetland had forests on it. Some of it had sort of more grass and some of it had more sedges, rushes and estuarine sort of areas that were tidal and that sort of thing. But yeah, as you say, Christchurch was built here. And as we know, a lot of it was drained. And in fact, the rivers here were fixed in their place. So a notable example of that would be the Avon River, I believe, it had a more meandering, dynamic way of moving around, and now it's quite fixed in place, and there are, you know, there are banks that keep it there. And another example would be the Waimakariri, which used to alternate between flowing south and then flowing east, and it would actually change. and There's actually remnant riverbeds that you can see from a plane or on Google Google Earth or something like that. You can actually see these old riverbed, sort of braided river. Remnants that used to flow and don't haven't flown for a couple of hundred years. Christchurch's identity ecologically does come a lot from wetlands, and this is wetland means that uh, you know quite a few things. For instance, you have Putaringa Motu or Wicked Bush, that is uh, the only indigenous forest remnant left in uh, lowland Christchurch. That's a forest, but it also gets really flooded over winter, especially, and that. Would be considered a wetland, but we also have you know, other spots like Travis Wetland up in sort of northeast Christchurch, which is more sort of a grassy, uh, sort of sedge land, which is more open, but it's also considered wetland as it is mostly permanently wet. Both these areas are super significant for biodiversity, but also for things like, I, I believe, carbon sequestration. So it actually traps, you know, things like CO2 in the, in the ground, um, things like that. But yeah, it's also they're also massive refuges for wildlife, and there's been a lot of research done on that. And it, it is extremely important to have these sort of remnant areas in the city, and they're actually really significant. What I've been up to is been working with a few different groups on trying to restore wetlands, specifically in the eastern side of Christchurch, which is generally more sort of low lying and more swampy, um, as it, there's the estuary and the beach there. So there's a bunch of different things. Um, especially this year, I've been working. And a new reserve in the suburb of Bexley called Mugford Reserve, it's been housing and also a bit of pasture and it's quite wet naturally. So after the earthquakes of 2011, it's been given over to the council and the council doesn't really have much time to do with it. So I said, hey, I'll you know I'll be keen to lead this sort of project and get it started and maybe start planting some plants on it, see how it goes, see see if some natural regeneration can happen too. And, and in fact, there has been quite a few Indigenous plants that have just grown up by themselves in this in this in this field and with no sort of effort required. I think that sort of indicates that certain places will naturally you can say heal, but you know, change their state is what an ecologist would say. They would sort of change over time and some of these areas are probably more suited to be wetland reserves and support wildlife and biodiversity over maybe putting housing on it, which would be more risky as there might be initial you know profit done from that but over time there'll be you know natural disasters like an earthquake as we say we live right next to a fault line and also flooding and tsunamis and things like that and that's kind of what happened to all these areas and and I think a lot of people in Christchurch and globally are realizing oh these areas actually much more beneficial to be these reserved areas for wetlands but also biodiversity wildlife uh, habitats environmental sort of cleansing as well with with waterways and having plants next to them that sort of clear out um, toxins that sort of thing also uh, re- retaining water so if there's a big storm event these places can keep water in them and slowly release the water instead of having all the water sort of dumped into suburbs um, surrounding neighborhoods that sort of thing so that helps people as well and that's really important about um, doing conservation work and restoration work it's to sort of benefit wildlife but also people people like going out into these nice areas where there's wildlife and these you know big open spaces and 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 sort of natural heritage and I think that is really important is that people enjoy it and people also like it and uh, it's sort of a win-win in my book so that's kind of my motivation for it and I've, I've had a really good time doing it so far it's been really good
0: amazing and you're so right like when we start to improve the environment when we let it heal when we I guess give like the rivers room to move and we restore those wetland areas we start to see the natural disasters don't have as much of a toll on the civilizations nearby because those environments are there for a reason they're doing lots of amazing things not only for the wildlife but for the, you know, retention of that water, for that um, erosion stop guards as well. Like having those plants there, having that water there is there for a reason and being able to keep areas like that and restore areas like that is really important. So thanks so much for sharing about our wetlands. If you were to be one
1: invertebrate
0: which invertebrate would you be
1: oh that's that is one hell of a question because they're all so specialized like they're all Ah, oh, what i choose eh oh honestly i reckon i would be a monarch butterfly obviously i'm biased because i'm i love moths and butterflies but a monarch butterfly can live a really long time and i didn't realize this until recently but monarch butterflies instead of uh breeding towards the end of autumn, they were actually just just hang around and just not do anything for literally six or seven months so you'd be an insect you get to fly around and see the whole world and and do all this crazy stuff they're capable of flying really long distances and in america's they fly from i think mexico to california or maybe the other way they're really cool looking so you look awesome you look sick and you fly around and then you spend the whole winter just chilling in trees and eating you know nectar and that sort of thing for like seven months and then i think that would be a really cool you know cycle. and of course you also have your caterpillar years which would also be very fun as a caterpillar that no one wants to eat so in my opinion that's what i'd be
0: kind of indestructible in some ways like things don't want to eat you however parasitic wasps do really love to go for the caterpillars (laughs) they have to watch out for the wasps
1: (laughs) they're my nightmare parasitic wasps even in (laughs) as a human being so there you go
0: (laughs) that's quite funny then thank you so much for joining me today Noah it's been an absolute blast having these chats with you learning all about our amazing invertebrates in Aotearoa thanks so much for sharing and it's awesome to hear about all of the experiences that you've had
1: yeah thanks so much for having me Sean I really appreciate it
0: now if you'd like to join our listener community head over to our link tree this is linktr.ee forward slash the seed pod underscore nz this is a place where you're able to find links to all of our social media platforms listening platforms and also if you wish to you can subscribe to our mailing list Thanks.